0: Our Sunday services are at 9 and 11 a.m. and include a full range of children's programs as well as a ministry specifically for children with special needs. Find us on Facebook or visit our website at rockpoint.org for more information. Handel was mostly a writer of opera, um, but on this particular occasion he wrote uh, something different. Um, he was somewhat depressed at the time and actually in financial difficulty and was considering actually quitting uh, the whole thing and returning back to Germany um, from where he had come. When a friend handed him a series of scriptures highlighting the life of Christ uh, and his work, and um, in a matter of 24 days, he wrote this uh, this particular piece, which is pretty amazing when you consider songwriting um, and the fact that that was not his specialty as such. It was performed originally in Dublin in 1741, um, and was received very well when um, went to London and was not received well. And there's more to that story, and we'll talk about that another time. Many believe, though, that it was particularly divinely inspired. Uh, during that whole time that he was working, he didn't eat a lot, and Handel actually liked his food a lot. Um, but he set it aside for those 24 days where he was caught up with it. That level of creativity and one that gives glory to God is something we should always uh, appreciate. One thing I'll just mention is this quick side note. We've had an increasing number of songs being written here and presented to you, and oftentimes we don't mention that they're original songs. Um, last Sunday's song that we closed with was an original, and there's been others like that, and I appreciate um, the team and what they put together in regards to that. We've been talking about <laughs> King of Kings, and today I want to talk to you about King of Kings Hope. It's rooted in <coughs> excuse me, the origin story that we've been talking about, but um, I, 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 I want to begin with a different passage that is actually our text for today. And in order to make sure that you have a full aerobic experience today, if you would please stand for the reading of the Word of God. Reading out of Revelations chapter 5, a unique, if anything else, Christmas section. And I saw a scroll in the right hand of the one who was sitting on the throne, a scroll with writing on the inside and on the back, and sealed with seven seals. A mighty angel with a loud voice was shouting out this question. Who is worthy to break the seals on this scroll and to unroll it? But no one in all heaven or earth or from among the dead was permitted to open and read it. Then I wept, John writes, with disappointment because no one anywhere was worthy. No one could tell us what it said. But one of the 24 elders said to me, stop crying for look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered and proved himself worthy to open the scroll and to break its seven seals. So I looked, and I saw a lamb standing there before the 24 elders in front of the throne. The living beings and on the lamb were wounds that once had caused his death. Father, I pray your anointing upon your word, upon our hearts and our minds to receive in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <coughs> this passage of Scripture is... um a really fascinating one, and we find introduced into this section um, something that is a very powerful imagery that we find used in a lot of different situations, this lion of the tribe of Judah. What is this lion of the tribe of Judah, and what is it about this passage? Well, that's rooted back in the origin story, actually. Last week I read to you, um, Genesis chapter 49, verse 10, what I didn't read to you was the verse that precedes it. And this is an attempt, at this point in time, you had Abraham, who had a son named Isaac, who had a son named Jacob, who becomes Israel. His name is changed by God. He has 12 sons. Near the end of his life, he's blessing his 12 sons, which become the 12 tribes of Israel. And at one point in time, he's blessing Judah, his one son. And as we read last week, but here's the part that precedes it, in chapter 49, verses 9-10, Judah, my son, is a young lion that has finished eating its prey. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. Like a lioness, who dares to rouse him? And then the passage we read last week, the scepter, this thing of rulership, this kingship, will not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from his descendants until the coming of the one to whom it belongs, the one to whom all nations will honor. It's saying that the royal line is going to flow through Judah. And, and that's kind of interesting because Joseph's his brother, you know, the guy who had the many colored coat and all that deal. got a couple of musical gigs and stuff ways back. Um, you know, he was a really cool guy. He was like a type of Christ. He was so righteous. Judah's nowhere near righteous. And there's a whole other story some other time we'll unfold that with. But the line of, of the Messiah is going to flow through Judah. The king of kings is going to come through Judah. The scepter will not depart. And what is going to be a, a trait? There's going to be something like a lion. There's a lion type thing. A lion symbolizes power and, and fierceness and majesty. And lions are king of the beasts. And the lion of, of Judah is the king of everything. And so this this lion is attached to the tribe of Judah from which descends King David, Solomon, ultimately Christ, the Messiah. And so this is a very important symbolism that we see. In fact, the symbol was so important in Judaism that it was used as the symbol for the Jewish state for quite a period of time and for many years. And when Jerusalem became the capital of current-day Israel, in 1950, they put a logo, if you will, or, or their symbol they were using. And, and this is what they chose. They chose the Lion of Judah to be the symbol of Jerusalem. You'll see that to this day, that marks it. And so this whole concept of a, of a lion, of, of, of this thing of Judah that's going to be so important, um, is a significant part that's woven through scripture and points towards Messiah. Now I, I've had one opportunities. So I've seen lions. You know, you see them in the cages and stuff. Years ago, uh, Rick Camiso and I were over in Nigeria for a bit of time, and um, we, we we had a chance to take this little vehicle, and you're going on the Masai reservation, and all the animals are just free ranging everywhere. You know, giraffes, uh, everything you want to imagine there, and um, it's kind of cool because they're just in their natural habitat. And at one point in time, the vehicle stopped. And and I look, and and just about 50 feet away or so, not even that, maybe 40 feet away, is a lion. Just sitting there, I'm realizing this lion's right there. Now, I got to tell you, lions in cages are cool. (laughs) Lions 40 feet away from you are a whole different experience. And, And it was a majestic beast. And I'm sitting here and going, okay, I hope you got your foot on the pedal, okay, that accelerates this little vehicle. Because if that thing stirs, I'm taking over, okay, and we're going. And he must have just eaten or something else. And, and he just kind of got up, yawned at us, and walked away. He had no interest in us at all. But to see this majestic beast in his, his, his reality, in where he's at, was incredible. We used to sing a song years ago in the church. I remember my father singing it. Um, and it was uh, about the Lion of Judah. The Lion of Judah shall break every chain and bring to us the victory again and again. The Lion of Judah. And he liked to do this. The Lion of Judah shall break every chain, and give to us the victory again and again. And we'd sing this song, and everyone's always a great song, okay? What is that about? What was all these things about? It's, it's, It's pointing towards a Messiah. It's pointing towards something that is going to free us from our sin, something that was so majestic, that was a king of kings, that brought a degree of hope that nothing else could bring or do. If you understand this rootedness in the scripture of this phrase, then you're going to understand this next little part, and I'm going to try to unpack this for you before we get too far into the revelation. C. S. Lewis was a friend of J.R.L. Tolkien's. Tolkien and Lewis were both Christians. Both of their works, Tolkien's great one was The Lord of the Rings. Um, Lewis's was The Chronicle of Narnia. Chronicles of Narnia. Um, they infused both of their works with Christian symbolism quite a bit. Particularly with Lewis he used particularly the imagery of a lion. And he had this magical land of Narnia where this lion who is the son of the emperor across the sea comes and establishes this land and he raises up all these animals so that there's talking animals. They can all talk and there's dwarfs and there's other beautiful creatures and, 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 and those who will be kings and queen are, are uh, a man and a woman from our own world and there's a time shift. So when they come over, uh, a, a little bit of time spent here, a long period of time spent here is like nothing over here. A week passes here, hundreds of years pass there and whenever the children pass back and forth, that time time change is strange because people they knew are all dead now and it's advanced and they're legends in the situation and so all these animals are uh, and, and creatures are brought to life and Aslan is their um, ultimate ruler though he establishes a, a, a human to to run things if you will where he's off at diff- to his different lands at one point in time in one of the early books one of the children betrays everyone is seduced by a, a, a satanic figure And in order to redeem that person, um, Aslan offers his life uh, for the innocent. So he's taken to a stone table and he's executed. And it's a sad moment, but then suddenly the table's cracked, and suddenly Aslan's bigger and brighter than ever before. And there's a realization that in this land, if you give your life an innocent life, a totally, purely innocent life for that of a traitor, that, that, that time works backwards, that, that, that life and entropy has changed, and, and so he's actually larger and stronger. It's a clear uh, um, crucifixion-type story. One of the last in the series is one of my favorite books. Um, it's also, in, in many ways, um, probably one of the sadder of, of the uh, of the books that you will read. Um, let me give you a little bit of background and help today. Years ago, uh, for a special anniversary, uh, the church gave my wife and I an opportunity to go to C.S. Luce's home in Oxford once a year. I don't know if they still do this, but twice a year, once in the spring, once in the fall, They let his home, which is called the Killens, because K-I-L-M, because it was a place where pottery had been made before, and so they just kept the name. Um, uh, They would allow 10 people in the spring, 10 people in the fall, to live in the Killens. You'd have talks in regards to his work and different professors. You'd go to Oxford and different places that were part of the stories and stuff, and it was an incredible gift, incredible opportunity. Um, We, out of our own pocket, brought our two young boys along at that time, very young. And um, while we were there at this place, one of the ten, one of the other eight people or so that were there, was a guy named Jason. I don't know his last name, but he was an illustrator for Disney. And um, one day he just sketches out, just on his own, he sketched out a picture uh, from the Narnia Chronicles um, for one of my sons. And then, to be fair, he sketched out one for the other son, a castle and one of the princes. And and then I, I just kind of stood there and looked at him, really sad. And uh, he sketched out one for me. <laughs> and um, and these are those sketches uh, that were done. You know, for Paxson, Taliesin, and then uh, for myself. And notice he pulled the lion out. I don't know why he did that. I don't know that I asked for it. Maybe I did. Um, because lion's so much important as to the stories. And then... Um, we're a little fuzzy on this. I think I, I, I continue to press them. Renee didn't want to press the poor guy. She's trying to give him space. And I'm like, yeah, right. One more. <laughs> Could you just do one more for me? And um, this has always had meaning to me. And I'm going to try to convey the meaning of this to you today. And this is this next one. Because this is taken from the last battle. It's a group of dwarfs that are in Narnia. And in this particular scene, they're inside a stable. And um, they're fighting over a delicious meal, but they don't see it as a delicious meal. They see it as garbage and leftovers because their perception has been twisted. So as we go along now, I will try to tell you a bit of this story. In the last battle, um, there's the final king of, of Narnia. His name is Tyrion. And he's kind of on vacation, but he's hearing stories that Aslan has returned. He's been gone for centuries, but he's returned and everyone's excited about it. What isn't known until later is what's happened actually is that there is an ape, talking ape, who um, has found an old lion skin from a, 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 a an actual dumb old lion. I can't speak from always, but it, it came downstream. And so he takes the skin and he tailors it over a donkey that's a friend of his, very naive, very simple, very sweet donkey, just does, thinks the, the ape knows what he's doing, and, and dresses him up and and to this... Uh, lion, So it looks like a lion. And, and in this ape's mind, his name is Shift. He's thinking, if if I can get people to believe that this is Aslan, then I'll get people to do what I want. And i will got all sorts of oranges and nuts and whatever I want to do. And so he begins to present that to people as Aslan, only he speaks for him, and and they they hide him, and they only bring him out at night around a bonfire that, interestingly enough, is in front of a stable, and so he'll come out of the stable, and, and he'll show there, and then Shift will do all the talking, and everyone's fearful that it's Aslan. Well, as it goes along, not only is Shift manipulating the situation for his own purposes, something that I think we've seen today quite a bit, people manipulating belief and religion for their own purposes... Um, but in time, he, he, he makes league with Narnia's enemies, the Calamans, and they slowly infiltrate. And as time goes on, they begin to enslave the people. They begin to chop down the trees, strip the land. And, and it's all believed that it's because of Aslan wanting to do this. At one point in time, Tyrion is realizing what's going on. And so he engages what at that point in time was one of the leader of the, of the bad guys, we'll just call them the Calamans, and the ape and all the rest, and, and they take hold of him. And at one point in time, he's overhearing them as they hold him. They're talking to the other animals and everyone else and saying, You know what? We in the collarmen, we worship Tash, this demonic figure, and, and you worship Aslan, but really they're just one. They're all the same. It's Tashlin. Just one. There's no difference between the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or any other God you want to name, perhaps. And that's a falsehood. That is a rank lie. There's something unique about the God that we worship. And so Tyrion flips out at that point. He says, ape, he cries with a great voice. You lie. You lie danively. You lie like an ape. He meant to go on and ask how the terrible God Tash, who fed on the blood of his people, could possibly be the same as the good lion by whose blood all Narnia was saved. Notice the imagery and the language again that's being used there. But they shut him up. And they shut him down. And so he's not able to say that. One point in time, he's rescued. And uh, um, upon being rescued, he gathers a few small grouping of loyal uh, um, individuals. And what they're going to try to do is to go ahead and, and, and free and, and fight against this evil that they see happening. And so they come across 30 dwarfs that are being taken off to the, to the uh, uh, mines to work for Aslan by the collarmans, And they rescue them from the bad guys. And they ask for a cheer, and there's like a pitiful cheer. And what happens is that... They are refusing to anymore acknowledge anything. They've been fooled by the false Aslan. We're not going to be fooled by you anymore. We're for ourselves. And this refrain that you see through this last battle of the dwarfs are for the dwarfs. We're, we're, we're done with being fooled and manipulated. We're done with believing or trusting anyone. And, and perhaps you've seen that as you've seen different figures fall. As you've seen different um, egregious things take place even within the church. And we, we pull in like dwarfs and say, that's it, I'm not going to believe anymore, I, I'm not going to have faith. We see a darkness in this world, it's just out for ourselves. And one of the, the, the main dwarfs' complaint was that they no longer trusted in Aslan after Narnia's enemies had set up this false one who they used to perpetuate atrocities. And so one of them says, I feel I've heard as much about Aslan as I want to for the rest of my life the dwarf says we've been taken in once and now you expect us to be taken in the next minute we have no more use for stories about Aslan see and we see the same thing especially with young people sometimes they look and see aspects and they don't understand fully everything and, and the justice issues and they say we don't want nothing to do with Christianity we want nothing to do with Christ anything to do with anything of that nature we're, we're done with all this deception going into play Tyrion and what few allies he has leave so demoralized but they realize they still have to take one more stand and so they go in this gathering of the, uh, outside the stable with the bonfires where they're gathered at and, and more and more of the enemy's soldiers are gathered there and, and they're trying to convince people that, that Aslan's not real that, that Tash and Aslan are one and the demoralization the depression of that and then they say actually inside the stable if you really want because they say well we want to meet Aslan well if you want to meet he's inside the stable there just go inside and meet him they have someone in there who's going to kill whoever goes in. But what they don't expect is that Tash actually shows up, the demon. The satanic figure actually shows up and is inside the stable. And before long, these people who had used religion for manipulation realized, wait a minute, Satan's real. Our demonic God is real. And so now the stable is a place they want to stay away from. They want to stay everyone away from. They want to feed as sacrifices, whoever gets in. And so the last battle is finally joined as, as King Tyrion steps up with the few allies he has and calls out the deception. And, and a few of the animals and a few of those rush to his side, but others are confused and some stay with the enemy. And so the last battle engages. At one point in time, it looks like things may be turning the tide and, and there's, there's a... a, a 20 or so talking horses that are charging and they've been freed from their labor and they're charging in to help out when suddenly you hear the twang, twang of arrows and the dwarfs who've been sitting out the fight off to the side execute every single one of the talking horses and one by one they roll over and die. And you go, what are you doing? The dwarfs are for the dwarfs. You think we're on your side? We're not in any way. The dwarfs are for the dwarfs. The fighting continues on and more reinforcements from the bad guys are coming in and at one point in time the dwarfs start shooting at them too they want to pin them down too they're for themselves but the enemy this enemy has armor on and they're bouncing off and so they go over there and they grab the dwarfs and they toss them inside the stable and now the light's getting darker and the fighting Has died down to the point where finally Tyrion, at one point in time grabs the enemy commander and grabs him and goes into the thing. You want to meet your God? Come in and meet him. He goes inside the stable and as he's there, yes, the nasty creature is there and in one peck just takes him and devours him. But then he's banished because someone else shows up within the stable. In fact, the whole situation of the stable changes. And you begin to realize that there's two dimensions, actually. That there's that which is outside the stable, and there's that which is inside the stable. That there's still the old Narnia and, and all of what's going on outside, but inside is actually Aslan's real land. It's the heaven. It's the real place. And not only is is, is, our, is, it, is it a place of beauty and grace, but all the old kings and queens, they're also gathered there. And they show up at this point in time. And um, in the midst of all the kings and queens, though, are also the dwarfs, And where the kings and queens and Tyrion see this vast land and through this other doorway, the old Narnia, and the stable from the outside, it's much larger on the inside. And in fact, at one point in time, that's even referenced by Tyrion as he's in the conversation. He says, it seems then, smiling to himself, that the stable seen from within and the stable seen from without are two very different places and I'm going to jump ahead here in my picture because Queen Lucy says at one point in time she says in our world too a stable once had something inside it that was bigger than our whole world and there's this nod in that moment of time in what is actually an apocalyptic revelation story because Narnia is now coming to an end And and while there's this great beauty and and wonder inside the place, the dwarves don't see any of it. They're blinded to what it is. It's a dark, smelly, horrible thing. And in the midst of all this, Aslan shows up. He comes full and complete. And as he comes in, not only is the demon banished, not only is everyone brought to joy that can see, but now there's a final attempt to try to reach out to these dwarfs who can't see. They refuse to acknowledge that they've arrived in Aslan's country. the real They insist they're still in the old place, imprisoned in the stable where they're thrown by their enemies. Aslan himself tries to convince them, even as have the kings and queens in Tyrion. At one point in time, Aslan gives a growl. And they say, starting a new lie, trying to make us believe where none of us shut up and it ain't dark and heaven knows what. And when they hear the growl, they say, don't take any notice, they aren't going to take us in again. He provides at one point in time, because they said, can you do anything to help them? And so he provides this beautiful, So I'll show you what I can do, what I can't. He provides a beautiful table of food and fine wine and everything else. And, and the dwarfs can't see it. They think they found an old, old chewed up turnip or an old piece of thistle or some water from the manger that a, a, a donkey had drunk out of and, and they start trying to drink and then before long they think that someone else has something better than the other one does and so they start fighting each other trying to get whatever they has. but they can't see the beauty of what is there. When it's all finished they finally stop and they say well at least nobody's fooling us the dwarfs are for the divorce, and at least nobody's fooling us and they're locked inside their own minds with all the beauty and everything around that they can't see and at one point in time Aslan says they will not let us help them they have chosen cunning instead of belief cunning instead of belief their prison is only in their own mind yet they are in that prison and so afraid of being taken in that they cannot be taken out today we live in a world that's lacking hope With clouds of despair and disillusionment hanging over our country. And like Lewis's dwarfs, many are imprisoned within their own mind. Today we would say the dwarfs were deconstructing their faith. They refuse to find the freedom of the gospel because they're so afraid of being taken in. We see all the things that have failed within the church, outside the church, all different places that we can't believe any longer that there's hope, that that there is a God who stands, that there is truth beyond all other truth. And it's not just an issue of my truth or your truth, but there is the truth. We no longer believe in the Lion of Judah. So we walk in darkness and despair instead of people being a people who have seen a great light like Isaiah talked about. And all of this, All this, this all leads us back to Revelations. And so I saw a scroll in the right hand of the one who was sitting on the throne. Scroll with writing on the inside and on the back, and sealed with seven seals. So, God is sitting on his throne, and he has a scroll, and it's sealed with seven seals. With the they would have done in those days is a piece of wax, and then they would have put an emblem of their signet ring on it to seal it. And sealed with one seal was important, three would have made it very important. Seven seals this is an incredibly important document. Incredibly important, seven various seals are upon it. And, 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 and here's the thing, that whatever was decreed within this, whatever was initiated through this document, until the seals are slit, it does not take effect. So if it's a new law that I'm writing as king, I've sealed it. But until that seal is broken, it does not take effect. And so he sees this, and at one point in time, a mighty angel, the loud voice shouting out, who is worthy to break the seals on the scrolls and to enroll it?" In other words, who can approach God, whom even cherubim flutter around and hide their eyes before? A holy God, who can approach God and take the scroll out of his hand? Who is worthy to do that and to break the seals and enact what this document is? And it's the document of redemption. It's the document of the conclusion of history. It's the end of the old and the beginning of the new. It's the destruction of this world. And establishment of a world for eternity who is worthy and John is watching this and then he says but no one in all heaven or earth or from among the dead was permitted to open and read it nobody living dead heaven hell in other words no one within creation but God stands outside creation So nobody within creation, no mere mortal, no spirit can do this. And so he weeps because John was part of a church that was being deeply persecuted at that time. And and if there is no redemption, if there's no end to history, if there's no victory at the end of this, then what are we dying for? What are we being persecuted for? Is there no redemption? Is there no salvation? Is there no grace? If the seals aren't broken, then God's work does not get established. And so he's weeping. But one of the elders says, stop crying. Look up. Look over there. He says, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Aslan, but not Aslan. Not the lion even of the tribe of Judah. Jesus Christ himself, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, the Messiah, has conquered and proved himself worthy to open the scroll. He's blameless. He's pure. And to break its seven seals and enact redemption and restoration and judgment. And so John looks up. He turns around to see this lion of Judah. And the scripture says, I looked and I saw a lamb standing there before the 24 elders in front of the throne of living beings and on the lamb were wounds that had once caused his death in other words the lion of Judah is also the same lamb who was sacrificed for the sins of the world that stable that, that once held something bigger than our whole world has now stepped forward in victory And the ultimate encouragement that I can bring you with just two weeks away from the holiday is that all the failures of significant figures of authority in your life, your own failures, all the deception, all the misleading that you've had in your life, could now in this moment of time be set aside if you can truly realize and accept the idea that the Lion of Judah walks today, that he's taken that scroll that is the end of time, that he's broken it open, and that he's released. God's grace, his judgment too, but his grace. It's an old statement. We've read the end of the book. We know how it ends. And it ends really well there's a really rough section of time and that's why the last battle is bittersweet because you see the old Narnia pass away and you see that yeah the enemy wins in that moment of time but ultimately they lose and there's this new heaven and there's new earth and that's the same thing that's happening today we live in this world that's lacking hope with clouds of despair and disillusionment even within the church walls I find it so at times it seems the entire shifting of our reality and of truth has fallen And like Lewis's dwarfs, many are imprisoned within their own mind and we become the same way if we are not careful and we get locked in with the darkness around us without being able to see the glory of God and see the beauty that actually surrounds. As Christians, we must not fall in such despair. We must remember and recall that we know how history ends. Like Narnia, our world will be replaced by something newer and better when Christ returns. God's steady hand guides history to the ultimate conclusions. And we should not be afraid in the midst of all the things that we see and that we face. There is a king of kings and lord of lords. There is once something in a stable that was larger than our entire world and will ultimately come to victory and redeem and restore this world. And that is truth. And so we can have hope even in the midst of the shadow lands. We don't have to crawl under the table and get into a food fight. We can see the beauty that God's laid up before us. So in this moment of time, on this particular holiday, I would encourage you, in whatever stable of darkness that you find yourself in, do not get caught up with dwarfism. Do not get caught up with being just for yourself. Do not get so disillusioned that you will no longer one more time rise up to believe the truth, to stand for what is right to come alongside in the place of combat and do what is right in the moment and not waffle or whiffle in the pine. I encourage you to lift up your eyes and see your salvation, even as John in his weeping is turning and seeing not just the Lion of Judah, but the Lamb that was slain. The psalmist tells us in 121, verses 1 and 2, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. The Lion of Judah stands. Isaiah in his prophecies in the 40th chapter said, Lift up your eyes, look to the heavens. Who created all these? Come out of the darkness. Who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name because of his great power and mighty strength? Not one of them is missing. The lion of Judah stands. Isaiah continues on in his prophecy in the 51st chapter. He encourages us as I do you today and myself as well. Lift up your eyes to the heavens. Look at the earth beneath. The heavens will vanish like smoke. The earth will wear out like a garment. And its inhabitants will die like flies. But my salvation, says the Lord, will last for what? My righteousness will never fail. The Lion of Judah stands and breaks the seal on the scroll and stands and says, the end of history is mine and you are with me and my salvation will last forever and my righteousness will never fail. Lift up your eyes. We have a special Christmas card that we're going to get to by video for Christmas Day. But next Sunday is our last Sunday as a people in this year together. And we'll conclude the King of Kings. But today I want to leave you with this idea of the King of Kings as the Lion of Judah that breaks the seal, that brings us hope, that restores all things. One little final note. I didn't get a chance to tell this to first, but I'll tell you. One of the dwarfs, his name is Pogan, one of the dwarfs joins Tyrion and joins the crowd one of them stands with the good guys in the end I pray I pray that I'm that one and I pray that you are as well one person in the right moment can make a massive difference a massive difference go into this season with hope Father, we come before you and we offer our lives. You are the lamb that was slain, the sacrificed for the sins of the world, but you are also that lion of Judah that stands and overcomes everything and is triumphant and victorious. You may begun in this world, in this moment of time, in a stable, but you finish echoing throughout time your glory and your grace. So, Father, I pray that everyone within the sound of my voice would be infused with hope from your scripture this day in the name of Jesus Christ. And the church said, amen. amen.